Good morning, all. Welcome back to Ask a Leader and shaking off everybody's Pacific Daylight Adjustments. I think I still am, and I hope you're over it yourselves. I am your host today, Claudia Shambaugh, on welcoming you to my March 11, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my first guest will be Dr. Elizabeth Kaufman, UCI professor of psychology and social behavior and director of the Center for Psychology and Law. She'll help us rethink the juvenile justice system in the U.S. of A. Then, Cynthia Burns, creator and producer of and performer in The Funniest Housewives of O.C., will give local female comics their due. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My first guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Kaufman, Professor and Psychology and Social Behavior uh, of Psychology and Social Behavior and Director of the Center for Psychology and Law at UCI. With President Obama's rolling out the My Brother's Keeper initiative, Dr. Kaufman's research gives us some new and I might add reassuring clarity, debunking many myths about the juvenile justice system and by examining those who've been incarcerated and those who have been diverted. We're going to break all that down in a bit. She will talk about some interesting preliminary outcomes. Already, findings from her research were incorporated into the American Psychological Association's amicus briefs to the Supreme Court in Roper v. Simmons, in which the court disallowed sentencing of juvenile offenders to life in prison without the positive uh, parole. Vital towards seeing this research through to implementation, Dr. Kaufman works closely with national and local agencies and has served as a member of the MacArthur Foundation's Research Network on Adolescent Development and Juvenile Justice. She's currently a member of the MacArthur's Foundation's Models for Change Initiative and is launching a large study entitled Crossroads, which follows her work on the earlier Pathways to Desistance study. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kaufman. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's really good to have you on as you present some really compelling work that's paused for some optimism in what has been a very dreary, if not unconscionable, trend in the juvenile justice system. It's had costs, social costs, financial costs all over. So first, Dr. Kaufman, tell us from what initiative the amazingly ambitious Pathways to Desistance study came from. I'd be happy to. Um, one of the things, and to put this in context, is that minority youth, uh, African-American males, Latino males, and I focus on males in particular because they are more likely to penetrate the system, uh, particularly more deeply into the justice system. And there's great racial disparity when it comes to punishing these youth, particularly in relatively minor offenses like drug offenses. But one of the things we know is that what happens to kids who commit serious crimes? Do they stop offending? A lot of people look at the predictors of what gets kids into crime. We wanted to look at, well, if you take the worst of the worst kids, kids who've committed aggravated assault, robbery, um, even murder, do they stop offending? Do they desist over time? And so we wanted to find out who stops offending. So we followed over 1,300 
serious felony offenders for seven years. So they were around 14 to 17 years of age when we started interviewing them, and we interviewed them every six months um, for seven years. And what we found was only about 10% of those kids continued their criminal behavior beyond their 20s. So only 10% of the kids persisted. 90% of those serious adolescent offenders stopped offending. And just to put this in some perspective, if you think about how much it costs to incarcerate youth, uh, we could save a lot more money by actually implementing programs in the justice system that divert kids from being locked up than from incarcerating them. That is incredible. So that's that's worth everybody. I want you to keep track of sort of where we're we're running the cash down here because of uh, and, and, and all of the costs here because we're certainly getting uh, there's a lot of a focus on uh, deficit reduction and, and that kind of a thing and this this is a runaway kind of uh, incarceration industrial sector and there's as Dr. Kaufman is going to show us that there's so many opportunities to let the data help us save lives, save the cash. Well, um, well, what what you've learned then in this desistance study um, is that these are 14 and 18 year olds, correct? And you want to tell us a little bit more about the population of these juveniles, their gender, their ethnicity, and age, and and uh, the locales, and I, which I hope include in those areas. They are both urban and rural populations? Um, So the Pathways to Desistance study, which I just described, where the kids desisted from their criminal behavior, they were 14 to 17 at the time of their arrest. They were located in Philadelphia and in Phoenix, so predominantly, you know, uh, urban suburban areas. I would. We did not go into the rural areas. Would you expect any difference? We wouldn't expect any difference, and in fact, kids are kids. Um, developmentally, kids are more immature, their characters aren't fully formed, and we know that they're more amenable to treatment. So kids are kids wherever they are, and the question is how you treat them. And so by following these kids, we were able to see that the best predictor, or one of the best predictors of kids stopping their criminal behavior was just them growing up. The research in the area of brain development has shown that the frontal lobe of the brain, the area right behind your forehead, that's the part of the brain that's in charge of your impulse control, your planning. It's basically what we call the CEO of the company. And that part of the brain isn't fully developed until about age 25, yet that's the part of the brain that regulates your emotions and controls your impulses. And so when we look at kids, one of the things we know is they're more impulsive. They don't think through their actions. And that may have a lot to do with how the brain's still developing in those areas. And as kids grow up, as kids develop and become more mature and able to regulate those emotional systems, we actually saw that 90% of serious adolescent offenders desisted from crime. And what's important to note here is that the majority of our sample were predominantly African-American males and Latino males. Uh-huh. And so this over-incarceration effect that we have, the punishment effect that we have, while obviously kids need to be held accountable, the bigger question we should be asking is, how do we hold kids accountable? And what are the proper ways to hold them accountable, given the developmental immaturity that we see? Well, and maturation also, I can say from some, let's say, personal anecdotal experience, it's maturation comes from living, that you, in experiences that you get through, survive and all, that that also will inform you what the bigger picture is. So it, the, with the the, the 
the cerebral cortex developing and myelinating eventually, as well as uh, life experiences that give you an idea that uh, this impulse, that, that get you pass this impulse, impulsivity. It gives you more data to make reasoned decisions about uh, your conduct, your choices you take. That's a great point. And it's a question I often get asked is, can we speed up development? And to be honest, there is some research that is trying to test that very question. Uh, several studies have been trying to be done right now is, can we get kids to develop those regions of the brain sooner? And to be honest, we don't have a firm answer on that yet. Is it just time? Does it take time to develop these things? Is it the experience? I think the jury's still out on that question, and we have a lot more research to do in that area to determine whether or not we can enhance or even speed up development. And as we see, when we've given, we allow um, permit driving privileges, we can see where we've deferred on uh, full driving responsibilities um, till after 18 for in many instances and in many states and in some other cultures and countries, there is no driving privilege that's even offered uh, of even a restricted kind until after the age of 18. So we've already addressed that responsibility in our society. So I guess the, the penal code has to sort of chase that model. Yeah. In fact, the rental car agencies have known for a long time that you shouldn't rent a car to anybody under the age of 25. Uh, so we actually have laws in place that have um, set in motion what we know about adolescents. For instance, maybe 16 to 17 to be able to drive, 18 to vote, 21 to drink. So we have notions in our in our society that adolescents are more, more immature than adults. Right. What's really interesting here is that the second a kid makes a mistake, and trust me, some kids make really bad mistakes, and they do need to be held accountable. But we have criminalized adolescents. For instance, zero-tolerance policies. What used to happen in the principal's office or solved in the principal's office is now being handled at the police station. We've actually implemented more laws that criminalize the way kids are held, and these unfortunately affect and are disproportionately more likely to occur among minority youth. I want to break down that a little bit, but uh, for those that, of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web at KUCI.org. My guest today, this portion of the hour, is Professor Elizabeth Kaufman, Professor of Psychology and Social Behavior. She's also the Director of UCI's Center for Psychology and Law, as we consider uh, the a juvenile justice system and some of the amazing breakthrough research that she and her colleagues are doing. Um, so I want to just step back a little bit with some of the, the terminology here. When you talk about um, processing youths in the justice system, you talk about incarceration versus diversion or being those uh, individuals who've been diverted. Can you tell us what that means? Uh, yes. So actually, we're doing a new study now called Crossroads. Yes. Crossroads is a study that's being done with 13 to 17-year-olds. It's being done in three locations, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, and right here in Orange County. So we're actually following 1,200 kids, 500 of whom live right here in Orange County. Right. And these are first-time offenders, so it's very different from the pathway sample who were serious felony offenders. These are kids who've committed their very first offense. Now, we know, for instance, if you commit a murder, 99% of those kids are going to be locked up. And if you're truant from school, you're 99% likely to get some sort of diversion. But what do you do with the first-time burglar, the first-time petty theft? There are some people who believe you should get tough with kids. 
that you should lock them up, that they should get processed into the system and taught a lesson. There are other people who believe kids deserve a second chance. They should get some sort of treatment or service or some sort of diversion and not be processed through the system. So Crossroads is really looking at the effect of formally processing a kid, that is giving them a formal charge and moving them through the justice system, versus informally processing a child, diverting them out of the system into more uh, community-type programs so that they don't have a record. And what we're going to do is follow these 1,200 kids for the next three years to look at the effects of how the system not only affects recidivism, that is, getting rearrested, right. but also what does it do to their educational outcomes? What does it do for their opportunities for employment? How does it affect their mental health? Exactly. I want you to, yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, developmentally, incarceration isn't doing you any favors. Well, and that's one of the things that we really want to understand. Okay. For instance, maybe formally processing a kid might have a good outcome. Maybe informally processing them might be the better one. To be honest, we don't know the answer. We don't know what the right process is. And in particular, we don't know the cost. So, for instance, the goal of the study is to really better understand if we have this type of child in front of us yes. and we do this type of action to them, you're going to get this type of outcome and it's going to cost you this much. Whereas if you did this kind of outcome or this kind of process, you'll have this type of outcome which would cost you this much. And we can actually make better informed decisions. And to be honest, money tends to talk louder than outcomes. And so one of the things we want to be able to do is help monetize Look, this is how much it'll cost you to get this type of outcome. Yes. Well, we'll we can use that as a seg into what your appraisal is of President Obama's My Brother's Keeper initiative, because it seems, unfortunately, that the the preponderance of funding in that initiative still is toward the sort of the hard uh, the infrastructure of uh, of the current sentencing system, and uh, not enough emphasis on where you think the, the change occurs. Can you break that down for us, please, where, where you think he's, he's coming a little bit short and we're not, we're not saving money or time or opportunity? Right. And I'd like to actually, my colleague, Dr. Lawrence Steinberg, just published a fabulous op-ed piece on CNN for those who are interested. And one of the things that we've noticed about this initiative, first, I think President Obama focusing on this topic is absolutely uh, fantastic, important, and integral uh, to what we need to be doing to to take care of um, these youth. But one of the interventions that has been highlighted is really to reduce uh, adolescents' behavior by teaching them social cognitive skills, you know, getting those self-control components, learning how to do those things, which is incredibly important. Yes. But one of the things that we think is important that this initiative really needs to consider, that we think the president also needs to focus on, is that we need to transform our social institutions as well. Right. Just changing the child mm. is not going to be as effective as changing the system, and in particular, the justice system. Given the, the racial disparity of how people are treated in the system, for instance, a, a black youth and a white youth who come before the system for a drug charge, we know that black youth are more likely to be treated harshly, more likely to penetrate into the system, and more likely to receive a severe punishment compared to a white youth. So there is research study after research study showing the disparity in the justice system, and yet the initiatives are primarily focused on changing the child. And if the system doesn't change, no matter how much effort you make in changing the child, it's not going to have the impact you want. You have to change the system as well. 
Well, I guess you're probably a little discouraged then. There's a a terrific opportunity. The president has political capital that he can expend, and I guess you're seeing this opportunity get squandered here. Well, I'd like to see the opportunity take more of a turn. I think he's started the first step, and I would like to see him do more. That's the most important thing is that the recognition is now there, and he's created a platform for this to occur. And so I'd really like to see the platform extend to actually transforming what the system is doing, because that, you know, kids don't exist in a vacuum. There's a context, and there's an environment that surrounds them. And without changing that context and that environment, the kids don't stand a chance. Well, this finan- the financial support for these studies is largely nonprofit uh, with some public funding. That's from the, ce- the public funding coming from the Center for Disease Control, Arizona Governor's Justice Commission, as well as the Pennsylvania Commission on Crime and Delinquency. What, uh, when one anticipates skeptics' reactions to your findings, it does seem that the outcomes would be quite tangible. Tell us about how you'll be able to uh, determine whether your prescriptive changes are working. One of the things that we do, for instance, if we go back to the Pathways to Desistance study, which was both privately funded um, by uh, a variety of agencies, including the MacArthur Foundation, right. the William T. Grant Foundation, but also by national agencies, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention and the National Institute of Justice uh, funded the study. And what we saw, and what's most important to note, is that kids desisted from crime. With the Crossroads study, we're already seeing that there is differences in who gets formally processed and informally processed with minority youth, in particular Latino males, more likely to be, incar- uh, to be more likely to right. be formally processed. Mm-hmm. So we're already seeing the, the racial disparity that I've talked about right. in the sample that <laughs> we're studying now. So um, with this initiatives, um, we've talked about the shortcomings, all that. So how... Um, so at that executive level, that's where we see initiative coming. How do you prescribe that we advance your findings uh, to some corrections in the system? How closely are you working with policymakers? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, we work both nationally as well as locally. For instance, the new presiding judge of Orange County for the juvenile court is uh, Maria Hernandez, and she is amazing. Oh, okay. She has opened up Orange County's court system and really allowed us to come in. We've come in and done presentations to the probation department. We have come in to do presentations to the defense and to the prosecutors. So we've really started to take these findings to court to educate those who work in the system. And, in fact, Orange County has been amazing at being responsive to this information, to wanting this information, so that they can make better decisions for our kids. So I have to say locally I'm very excited about the partnership that we have between UCI and the Orange County Juvenile Justice System because those types of bridges are what make system change happen. Right. So, And you're going to continue to need, though, and we all do, that is, uh, more political support uh, to reverse the momentum from the sort of uh, sledgehammer approach in public policy to zero tolerance at schools and in the, judici- uh, in the juvenile system, so zero tolerance and mandatory sentencing. And uh, yesterday, uh, there was an appeal in the New York Times about our three strike strikes are out. They're looking at in that editorial at the second strike being uh, overly uh, impunitive. So um, how how can we work with a public that wants to throw the book at students in the school system and in the juvenile system uh, with these 
heavy-handed kinds of policies. Well, I think that's where the, the problem has become. Is many of us are scared. When kids do bad things, and particularly really scary things, we are reactive, as we should be. School shootings, they are so rare, yet that when they hit the news, we are all immediately gripped with fear and with terror and with sadness, and we want something done. I mean, as a parent of two children, those things are terrifying. However, those are rare occurrences. And in fact, right, if you look are. at the statistics, school is one of the safest places to be. Right. So what I think has happened is that we create policies and practices that are overarching, that don't give us discretion. We have removed the ability to make discretion or to make um, individualized assessments because mandatory sentencing laws, mandatory policies have required us to make these certain types of decisions. What, what I was most excited about was when the um, Supreme Court in Roper v. Simmons which yes. abolished the juvenile death penalty, mm-hmm. and in both Miller and Graham, where they limited the options of life without the possibility of parole as a mandatory sentence for juveniles. The Supreme Court has already recognized that kids are different and that these mandatory policies should not be in place. So one of the things I think that's hopefully shifting is that maybe these policies, while I understand where they've come from, may not be the appropriate thing to have in place. We do want to uh, appropriately hold kids accountable. We just want to hold them accountable in the correct way. And a one-size-fits-all approach to every child does not work. And in fact, what many people don't realize is it could be their kid who gets caught up in a system-wide policy. For instance, uh, recently we saw a kid um, in Pennsylvania. He spit a uh, spitball. Heaven forbid any of you ever do spit spitballs at anybody. Oh, um, well. He was a freshman in high school, and he was expelled from school for a year, no. charged with criminal assault, and his dream of going to the U.S. Naval Academy was ruined. Uh, he was an honor student, uh, but... He can no longer attend because he ha- now has a criminal record. Dr. Coven, was that a case of a zero tolerance for spitballs? Yes. Or oh, for projectiles? Zero tolerance, tolerance for, you know, aggressive acts in school, no weapons, and the spitball was considered a weapon. Well, has that? do you know that that policy had been reconsidered so it's not such a, a sledgehammer approach to um, adjudicating I think people students? are now realizing because of these... Um, these egregious cases, this is not what this policy was meant for, but unfortunately, because we um, have them in place, we're becoming more and more strict with them. And so I do think some places are trying to loosen them. Some people are trying to work around them, but they are all in place, and they do have impact and consequences for our children. Oh, oh, absolutely. If you've just joined us, my guest is Professor Elizabeth Kaufman, Professor of Psychology and Social Behavior at UCI and the Director the new director of the Center for Psychology and Law, as we consider the recent rollout of President Obama's initiative, My Brother's Keeper, and some heady, heady work with amazing findings that she's doing about the juvenile justice system. Well, then, just last week, the documentary Cash for Kids was released. I don't know if you've seen that. It's talking about the downside of mandatory sentencing where... uh, presiding judges receive money through uh, throwing the book at the adolescents. Are you familiar with that phenomenon? Yes. In fact, my colleagues, uh, Marsha Levick and Bob Schwartz at the Juvenile Law Center in Philadelphia, actually headed up the case and led that initiative to bring down that horrible practice that the judges were doing in Lucerne County. 
And I understand that the point of the documentary was to to absolutely characterize the, the judges as the villains. That's the review that I'd heard. And that the, even the judges who were dealing with mandatory sentencing but not receiving the cash for those sentences, they also felt very, very culpable. So it, but that, that, uh, when did that discontinue that practice? I believe it's discontinued about two or three years ago. I can't remember the exact timing of the case, and I apologize. Oh. But it, it was um, a very serious consequence where judges did have an alignment with uh, programs, and programs would pay them for the kids they would send their way. And unfortunately, more minority youth were actually in, um, caught up in that as well. So uh, it was a very, very disturbing trend we saw and a very, hopefully, rare event. Um, the majority of judges in the justice system, whether juvenile or criminal, work very hard uh, to pronounce the sentences they do. What most judges are strapped with is the mandatory sentencing laws. Right. They're given very little discretion anymore. And so the judges out there, in addition to the prosecutors and the defense attorneys, are struggling because the policies we have in place afford very little opportunity for change. For instance, in the state of California, if you are 14 years of age and you commit a, a, a serious type of crime like a robbery, you are automatically transferred to the adult court system. There is no discretion. There is no uh, discussion about whether or not you uh, have extenuating circumstances. It's automatic, even if you don't belong there, even if the prosecutor and the judge don't believe you belong there. It's an automatic process. So, for instance, in California, you can be tried as an adult at the age of 14. In Vermont, the age is 10. In Nevada, the age is 8. And in Michigan, there is no lower age limit at which That's you can be tried as an adult. Amazing. Wow. Well, and uh, I want, uh, while we have a little time remaining, I wanted to explore, since you talked about serious crimes, I don't know if sexting is considered a serious crime. It's an increasing uh, phenomenon in the rather pervasive social networks among uh, the youthful demographic. So um, would that be a considered a serious crime? And we and you can unpackage that and talk about, therefore, the consequences in one's uh, record uh, that encumbers their movement at some point. Absolutely. My uh, graduate student and I, April Thomas, uh, she and I wrote a paper, and in fact she led the paper, um, on this very issue, because one of the things that we've noticed is the criminalization of adolescence sexting. The media has changed adolescence. Those parents out there who see their kids on Facebook and their kids attached to their phones, the media has changed the passing of notes, and these passing of notes can now include an inappropriate photo. And so sending a naked picture of yourself if you were under the age of 18 is considered child pornography. And in fact, a case in Florida, it was A.H. v. Florida in 2007, a 16-year-old girl and her 17-year-old boyfriend actually took photos and videos of themselves in a sexual encounter. They didn't even share those photos with anybody else, but the photos were discovered. And when the photos were discovered, they were charged with child pornography. Now, sometimes kids who are found with these photos not only get charged with a crime, but because they can be considered a sex offense, could have to register under Megan's law as a sex offender for 25 years. Yes. So mm. what is stupid adolescent behavior, which is what most of this is, can really end up in a very serious consequence that could have consequences for, for years and years to come. 
Well, it's uncanny, Dr. Kaufman. I notice in your citing that case, AHV Florida, mm-hmm. that child doesn't have their full name in there because they're being protected, right? Their identity because yes. they're, but they're not being protected in the actual processing in the juvenile judicial system. So that there's it's a there's an irony there. Absolutely, and that's the irony that I always point out when I recruit people into my studies. As the chair of the IRB at UCI. We are required, and it's important to note, that every child who participates in our study gets a full consent form, as does their parent, because the child would not be allowed to participate or talk with me without the consent mm-hmm. of their parent. Right. However, they would be allowed to be tried and processed as an adult in wow. the courtroom setting. And the IRB, the Internal Review Board, that is the uh, board that uh, oversees all clinical research on all, uh, acad- all academic institutions. So it's a, for people who aren't familiar with that institution here, um, here and everywhere. So it's, uh, that, that really does, uh, is amazing. I, I want for people to know they can get more information from, uh, the, uh, your website there, uh, psychlaw.socieco.uci.edu. And then there's also, um, the website for the first study mentioned at the www.pathwaysstudy.pit.edu. So there's, there, that's for people to find out more. And I, I want for you to offer some kind of a tangible step people can take who are just really uh, overwrought with the irony and uh, the helplessness and the wish to, to see some sort of fiscal uh, maintenance uh, responsibility in this runaway juvenile justice uh, debacle. Well, there's several things that people can do. Um, for those who are interested, I mean, it's very important always to write to your congressman or to write to the president to discuss those types of issues to get legal processes changed. So those are things that are always effective. But if you're interested in the local ways of getting involved, we're always looking for people to partner with to help us fund these studies. The research studies that we do are extremely expensive. Okay. And, and those kinds of things help a lot. But most importantly... It's really getting involved with your local community, being part of your schools and being part of kids' lives to really help them better make better choices and not to be so harsh on them during their adolescent years. So to rethink that, the, z- the zero policy, um, zero tolerance policies are set at the school district level, are they not? Correct. So that, that could be something folks could take toward to their school boards and their superintendents so that the, the spitwad doesn't become a... Uh, Criminal uh, an all-defining, life-defining kind of a consequence. It's, uh, that that really is uncanny. Well, I believe we've run out of time, Doctor Kaufman. It's really been good talking with you today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that was thank you for coming on. That was Elizabeth, Doctor Elizabeth Kaufman, professor of psychology and social behavior at UCI and director of the Center for Psychology and Law. So stay tuned, everybody. We'll be. Right back uh, with Cindy Burns, comedian, giving uh, local comedians their due. We'll be right back. Les portes du pénitencier bientôt vont se fermer. Et c'est là que je finirai ma vie comme d'autres gars l'ont. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. That was the good old classic Johnny Halliday with Le Penitentiaire. The, um, it's a, a, a little more of an incarceration theme than the, the Eric Burden theme. Well, thank you for joining us here uh, Ask a Leader. My next guest 
is Orange County comedian Cindy Burns, who proclaims to be a 28-year-old trapped in a 50-year-old body. And oh, can a whole lot of my listeners and the host relate. That's why Cindy is a delightful guest here on Ask a Leader. She has appeared, Cindy has, on Oprah and The Tonight Show and was selected by Joan Rivers herself to be the next breakout star in a nationwide search by WTV. She's a creator and she's producer and performer in Funniest Housewives of Orange County. The show is inspired by, and I quote, is a cast of strong, funny, and fabulous femme fatales who do it standing up. She comes in advance of her appearance at the Coach House on March 22nd. We'll make sure you get some particulars later. She was born and raised in Southern California. Her mother, the actress and song and dance girl, imprinting on her, and her father was a, a frustrated comedian himself. He, uh, Although he didn't pursue it professionally, he was the funniest guy that she knew, and she inherited uh, his sense of humor as well. Cindy has been in the business for a long time and has made it one of her missions to see that female comedians get their due. She uh, comes to us today from Orange County. Cindy Burns, welcome to Ask a Leader. I'm so excited to talk with you today. Oh, wow. Well, it's 2014, and we, I'm gonna, this, is the, this is the downer part of this uh, piece, folks. Uh, uh, we read about so many women in creative fields who are underrepresented or undercompensated, women in museum management receiving 20% less compensation than men. And last week, the A-list women around the Oscar time were clearly incensed with the disparities of women's participation in films, along with these gender gaps. Cindy, why don't you tell us about the gender gap in comedy, whether this makes any business sense? Well, I've, I've been doing comedy for probably um, over 20 years, probably close to 25 years now. And um, unless you, for whatever reason, through TV or a good, you know, you, you've, you're a household name, women have a hard time getting work in comedy. It just tends to be a boys' club. So I would go to the comedy clubs and I would meet all these fabulous women. And it was, it was something that we always talked about, how, how it just was really hard to break in and make the the, the money that um, a male headliner would make as a as a woman, so I decided rather than beat my head against the wall, just to create my own universe, and I put together um, the funniest housewives of Orange County, which are all headliner, all funny women, and we've been asked to go all around the country now. So I just dropped the Orange County, and now we're just called the funniest housewives. And um, what I've noticed is, and interestingly enough, I've noticed that women, they come out, they'll come out and they'll bring some girlfriends and they'll have a great time, and then they'll want to maybe bring another organization or another group of girlfriends or some family members. And the same women have just come out to my show in packs over and over and over again. So the show has been really successful. All right. Well, very good. Well, you're talking about those that are turning. Well, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about your audience's demographic or demographics. Well, you know, I, when I when I started the show, in in my mind, I thought it was going to be similar to, if you will, menopause the musical, as far as um, a, um, how do I say, like a review, attracting women audience. Okay, I'll see. Um, and in all ages, because our com- comedians are all ages. So what has happened organically is I've noticed that the men love it 
as much as the women. So now the audience is mostly couples and packs of women. So it's, it's interesting. The men over and over again tell me it's the funniest comedy show they've ever seen. So, you know, it, it's interesting why the comedy club owners and the industry don't look as women as funny and hire us the way the audience is embracing us. Interesting. And it, it's just an in, it, interesting dynamic. So now everybody wants to hire the housewife, but it didn't start out that way. Well, I, I want to – maybe you can tell me about – from your extensive work, uh, what what's in play here too? I went to a a moth hour. It's a sort of a, a sort of a slam. People give an eight minute stand up, and it tends to have lots of humor in it. But and so they tend to be comedic. But uh, they're they may be professionals. They may be uh, uh, not professionals, uh, amateurs. That uh, at the moth hour, and I remember hearing male after male after male contribution. And I actually, I was kind of a militant member of the the audience, and I said, "Let's get a female on this on this forum now, because already, because it just seemed to be getting steeped and steeped in more of the X Y. And I needed my X X sort of perspective in that. It wasn't. I I didn't come with a a, a chip on my shoulder. Actually, it's just that it was a result of what the the actual content or the delivery was from only the XY. Can you tell me what what I was dealing with there? Well, if, if you if you go to like one of the, and I, I shouldn't even say, but any comedy club, I won't even be specific, and you look at the, the lineup of headliners, um, it's 80, 80, 90% men. And then every now and then a woman will open for one of them. And then, of course, you'll have your, you know, very strong females like Joan Rivers or Roseanne Barr and a few others who have, you know, had TV shows and, and they'll They're get their opportunity to headline. Mm-hmm. It, it, I, I don't know. It, I think part of it is, you know, the, and this is so archaic, but, you know, women should be seen and not heard and, you know, we're subservient and, you know, and, and to the things that we talk about, you know, Years ago, it wasn't appropriate, but things have changed. Right. People love to hear the woman's voice now. Men love women. They live with us. They love us. They embrace us. They know us as well as, you know, anybody. And and when when we're truly funny, I mean, there's some extremely talented women out there. They enjoy it as much as anyone else. So I think it's changing, but it's just slow to change. Well, for those of you who just joined us, my guest is comedian Cindy Burns in advance of her appearance at the Coach House on March 22nd here on Ask a Leader Radio 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming uh, in uh, showrooms, uh, lobbies all over the world on the web at KUCI.org. I'd like to hear you talk, Cindy, about what makes your current production special, your cast, uh, maybe some interesting stories about scouting them and fitting them into the various archetypes or the not-so-typical roles that they're presenting? Well, the show is um, an all-female stand-up comedy show, and the females or the women that I that I are in the show are women that I've known over the years who are just ridiculously funny. And I, I don't, I mean, people do come to me and want to be in the show, but it kind of organically grew. I had like these five basic women, and now we have about 12 or 15. Oh, wow. And like, for instance, I'm 58 years old, so I'm the anti-aging housewives 
anti-aging housewife because all my jokes reflect that. And then we have, I'm doing a show, Newport Beach Lido's Women's Club on Thursday night, and I'm bring, bringing Kira Soltanovich, who is... Oh, she's outrageous. Yeah, she's the voice of the phony photo booth on, that was on Jay Leno at the Universal City Walk. She um, has incredible credits. She has a one-woman Showtime special called Here Comes Trouble. She was the star of um, Girls Behaving Badly with Chelsea Handler. And she's our inappropriate housewife. And then um, Roseanne Barr selected on um, Nick at Night's Funniest Mom in America a gal named Vicki Barbalock as the Funniest Mom in America, and she's our trailer nasty housewife. And then I, um, Barbara Walters had a, a show where they found the most hilarious housewife, and they selected Julie Kidd, who is our dysfunctional housewife. So all the girls have incredible credits, every single one of them, yet on their own, you know, they struggle to, to break into this world of stand-up comedy. So when we all got together, it was kind of like um, we created our own universe of funny women. And I produce it, and um, the shows are, we do shows every week all over the place. So it's just, it's, it's been um, so much fun working with women that share the same passion I do. I mean, what's, I don't think I'm stealing anything, but what's there not to like with Kira Soltanovich's, um, her, her aspect where I guess she's married an, uh, an Irish man, and so she's chosen not to keep his, uh, not to take on his last name because that just blows the whole, um, the Jewish East European. Well, she's Russian, and a lot of her, oh, gosh, she's so funny. She, she talks a lot, she does a lot of humor about, she was born in Russia. And I think she came over here when she was 12, if I remember right. So, yeah, she, she um, absolutely, well, I'm Jewish, too. So her and Jew, we're the two Jews in the, in the group. And I'm also married to an Irish-Scottish man. But oh, but you says, kept the name, you took Burns on. Okay. I took Burns on. Unless you were Bernstein. Um, she said when she got married that she decided to convert to alcoholism. Oh, That's yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, um, and, and when I asked about your uh, demographic, and I'm just, I, I pop back that question when I'm thinking of uh, all of the archetypical or as, as like the uh, rocket scientist, um, Latina rocket science that Shayla Rivera, is she, she's going to be in the review? Was she um, be in? She, Shayla's hilarious. She, and, she, she, no, she won't be there um, for March 22nd, but she really, truly did get her degree and worked for NASA. So, you know, and then dropped out. Of, she quit her job at NASA to become a comedian, which she said her parents were, you know, NASA, we have a problem. Yeah, but but right. she's, she's also a motivational speaker, so she does a lot of, um, she speaks for women's groups as well as she's a comedian, and she's truly brilliant, brilliant so, woman. It, so, so, Cindy, forgive me for the interruption, that, um, that, so does your audience then, um, demographic, does it reflect different age groups and ethnicities then as the following continues to develop and, uh, I shall say, deepen? Well, usually when I design a show, like at the Coach House, it's the general public, I try to ha represent, like, the generations. So some of our comedians are young moms, and some of them have older children, and some are empty nesters, and some are, you know, we have two comedians that are in their 80s. So, I mean, we try to, to give, you know, to select a real good, diverse um, 
group of ladies for each show. And does the audience then uh, sort of follow, match that, or is that... Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the... Sometimes you, you'll get, like, mothers and daughters and grandmas that come out as a little group, so they're fun because, you know, they, they get, everybody has their favorite. And a lot of times it's a bachelorette party, so they love Kira because Kira has a two-year-old, and she really talks about her marriage and babies, and, you know, she's like the new housewife. And then, um, you know, so, so it, and yet they all have moms and grandmas. They relate to all of us. And as you were saying, where their materials coming from? I know Vicky Barbalak um, has. Uh, I guess she has sort of a. Um, there is a uh, detriment to her own dating life that the, every prospective uh, uh, date uh, wonders whether they have to look over their shoulder whether they become fodder for her next stand-up. That must uh, that must be a little bit of an occupational hazard for some of the comedians. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny because a lot of times. It, they, we write jokes organically at our shows. Something will happen with the audience, and and yeah, they will end up in our act. You know, but it, it, it's 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 really an extension of who we are. They're not really jokes. Like every every one of us, it, we're more humorous. We tell jokes, obviously, but each one of us has a strong voice. And I'm going to, just from reviewing some of them, and I'm not sure if it's because it's YouTube and there's some screening, but I guess I'm finding that a female brand of humor, and I, I, I'm welcome to be clobbered by either my listeners or my guest, Cindy, um, that uh, I'm thinking there is, the t- it's an edgy kind of uh, content, but it's not slinging so many F-bombs and, and uh, other kinds of uh, of um, profanities, it's a, it's just a, it's it's edgy, it's graphic, but it's not profane. Well, I find with humor, and and I I'm I'm kind of a I'm kind of tough on the girls about this. I I, I don't like any profanity, and okay. I really shy away from it. And, and they can do it in their own shows, but when they do a housewife show, I really shy away from, from profanity. But at the same time, the edginess is more of a. You know what a comedian does is they say things that none of us have the nerve to say. Right. And they expose things that we all feel and think and wish we had, you know, the ability to just come out and say it. And we say it for you. So it's very liberating. When you get, you know, three, five hundred people out in the audience laughing hysterically at something you say, a part of it is because I can't believe she said that. Right. I've always thought that, and no one has ever said that. And so it's it's really, um, it, it's therapy. It, you feel better. It releases endorphins. It can actually, they found that people that laugh a lot, you know, suffer less depression. Um, so it, it really is, I feel like we're providing a great service. So we're like, what we do. a prescription for after a, a PTA meeting, go straight to Vicki Barbalak's uh, Oh, Vicki. Stand up and... I did a show with her in Palm Springs in a place. We did it on Saturday night. It called the Purple Room where the Rat Pack used to hang out. Oh. And it was just the most incredible room with the most, the rich history there. And just to share that stage, and it was Vicki and I and another gentleman. And the audience was, and every audience is different. This audience was probably 50% gay and 50% over 50 couples that, li- that are retired and live in Palm Springs. And she had them on the ropes, eh? Oh, th- I- I- she tore it up. Oh, wow. It was, 
I've that's a reach. Describe to you how much fun we had. She's reaching over a lot of divides. That's how funny she is. That's great. Well, I want to make sure Cindy Burns, um, comedian and presenting uh, both on March 22nd and on May 10th at the Coach House, uh, the, or it's not any longer Orange County's funniest, just funniest housewives. Period. Funniest housewives. And yeah. uh, that's you can the uh, the website for following where if you. If, uh, the, all the gigs that are coming up, it's the Triple W, of course, funniesthousewives.com. And the Coach House also has that. We're, I'm going to offer, after the show, I'm going to offer some giveaway for the first, uh, first the, Mar- the March 22nd show. And we'll offer some other uh, giveaways as premiums for our fun drive later in the spring. But um, it's when George, George Rosales will let him do that. But uh, can, I w- can I just mention to you that the March 22nd show is sold out? Oh. We are giving away a couple tickets for you. Oh, well, thank you for doing that if you sold out. My goodness. Yeah, oh, huge out, premium. There are tickets still available for March 10th, which is the Saturday before Mother's Day. May 10th, you mean? I mean, I mean I, it's May alliterative, 10th. May and March. So, yeah, yeah, for May 10th, there's still some. So uh, that's very important. And these are at a incredible premium that these two tickets that, that we'll give away during the next uh, the music show with George Rosales. So so listeners can stand by for that. But I, I want to thank Cindy Burns and give our best to the, uh, the other funny ladies. But I want to thank Cindy Burns for being on the show today. This was great. Thank you. Okay, fine. Well, lips, we'll be right back after just a brief break. So next week on Ask a Leader, we're going to have on some of my favorite people from the Orange, uh, the University of California Center for Hydrology and some representatives of the Irvine Ranch uh, Water District. Then I'm going to have on the curator, uh, curator from the Museum of Latin American Art, Uh, to talk about the new exhibit opening next week, Frida Kahlo, her photos. I just love the heck out of this job, folks. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Be back next week. My funny valentine Sweet comic valentine You make me smile 